Hey guys, in this week's episode, I'll be interviewing Julia Walsh, a senior here at Dickinson College and also happens to be one of my very close friends. Um, She and I will be talking about Patagonia today and what it means to be a brand that is sustainable from the start. So I'll be covering a little bit about their history. Um, We actually had a Patagonia employee come speak to Dickinson, so took some time to watch that and I recap it for you guys towards the end. Feel free to keep listening. Okay, so to outline a little bit of this episode for you, Julia Walsh, um, we are going to start talking about um, the founder of Patagonia and the history, um, sort of how it came to be, and then we're going to work our way into some sustainable practices from their business model, um, things that the common consumer may not know, um, a little bit of firsthand experience through a TED Talk-like showcase that Dickinson hosted where the environmental advocate for Patagonia came and spoke and then lastly we'll talk about initiatives that they currently have um and the years that those start and what it looks like moving forward so and I'm going to butcher his name and I've played it (laughs) on google you can like play what it sounds like and I'm still gonna butcher it it was founded in 1973 by Yvonne Schwinard um And he started his sort of outdoor adventure experiences, um, rock climbing at the age of 14 through a program that was sort of like the Boy Scouts, but more um, focused in like outdoor recreation. So they worked on conservation practices and then just sort of preserving and leaving the land how you found it when you're partaking in that stuff. So he did that. Exactly. Um, he did that at the age of 14 in Southern California, which is where he's from. Obviously, their headquarters are in Ventura, California, but he is no stranger to the West Coast. Um, and in his late teens, he picked up skills as a blacksmith in order to make his own climbing equipment. Probably also going to pronounce this one wrong. But the main thing he made was a piton. I'm going to say a piton, not a piton. P-I-T-O-N. Okay. Um, and those are kind of, I don't know really how to describe them. They're like the little hooky things that you have to hammer into the mountain to go up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kind of like a exactly. staple type of thing. Is that a climbing term? I don't know. Oh. Like when you're doing like a set climbing course, there's like some staples in. Yeah. It's the stuff that you would. Yeah. It's that. Exactly. Cool. The little hammer it in, go up the mountain things. So he learned how to make those. Um, and as a climber himself, he made them a little differently than the standard ones. So he was making them a little better um, based off of what he thought they needed fixed. Mm-hmm. And then he would sell them for $1.50. Um, and this Ooh. was all prior to his founding of Patagonia. So this is back in the 60s. Um, so his main appreciation is that his love for climbing didn't really have an economic value. Anyone could just go climb a rock. You didn't have to like necessarily pay for it. You had to pay for the gear sometimes, but you could also free climb, boulder, things like that. Um, And since he didn't come from a lot of money, there were stories that he would just sleep in his van. One time he bought like a month's worth of like tuna and that's all he ate going up and down the coast, like surfing, climbing. He was very much um, low maintenance living and just Mm -hmm. being outside. That was his sort of mantra. Um, I feel like now sometimes climbing is so, like I'm not a climber by any means, but I've like gone a few times and it can be pricey if you don't have gear to like go to a gym like rent all the gear so that's cool that he was able to just kind of do his thing yeah I would say I wouldn't even say that's exclusive to climbing I think outdoor recreation has become a massive industry 
yeah totally with all the funky things you can now force people to buy not necessarily my favorite most ethical choice but <laughs> anyways he started the Chouinard probably got that wrong again the Chouinard equipment company in 1965 um and he was at that point making the strongest climbing tools on the market through his like blacksmith skills and this was with a couple of his friends who he'd been climbing with since the outdoor boy scout thing so oh, cool. <laughs> um by the 1970s Chouinard equipment was the largest supplier of climbing hardware in the United States and they oh. were also very big villains to the environment based off of this so the baton we mentioned had to be like hammered into the face of the rock um but it actually permanently damaged the rock and since it was mm. such like a fragile thing um if you weren't to remove those or if someone went to like hammer it in, in the same spot you had it like severely damaged rock making it any sort of like virgin rock that you climb after that it would be like damaged mm. so what was what were they made out of they blacksmith stuff like metal <laughs> yeah i was i just wondering if they were using some sort of like precious metal or something if that was like part no, of the issue no okay. it was just how damaging it was to the rock um gotcha, gotcha. and then of course you can't really go back and fix that mm-hmm. um but yeah some type of metal um so at that point they started to reduce their pit in production they started to create aluminum chalks okay <sighs> Chalks. Chalk as in like what climbers use to like wipe No, I'm going to have to spell it oh. C-H-O-C-K-S, like chalk. Oh, okay. No L in there, but it's an aluminum chalk. And it the best way I can describe is it, it looks like a, a hexagon. Like it's just a aluminum hexagon with nothing in the middle. It's hollow. Okay. Um, and that was to substitute the piton. Um, so you would wedge those in by hand versus hammering. I think the hammering mm-hmm. was like the big damaging part to the rock, um, mm-hmm. but you would wedge them in by hand and then they could be removed. So you wouldn't have to leave them in the rock either. Oh, cool. Um, so by 1972, they ceased their own personal use and also the sale of batons um, for their company. So mm-hmm. that was huge. They were the largest producer of it. And then they ceased full production, which you don't see nowadays. Wow, yeah especially if it's obviously something people are buying like yeah I also think that speaks to um like he was able to prior to even having Patagonia and founding it he was able to reroute an entire business based Mm -hmm. off of what he was seeing with damaging the environment Mm -hmm. so I think that's where his like innate sustainability practices like come from um sort of this prime experience of damaging the earth and wanting to change it um so after that, he's very successful making patons, not patons, sorry, stopping mm-hmm. making patons and making chalks. Um, okay. So it was said that he had this rugby shirt that he got in the UK that he wore everywhere. And he loved <laughs> it because of its practical use. Like um, the classic because, like collar strip yeah. situation. Okay. Yeah. And it was, it was actually a rugby shirt, like genuine rugby, not just like <laughs> the style. Um, it mm-hmm. was a literal rugby shirt. Um He loved the rugby shirt because with the like high collar, it didn't rub when he would wear harnesses. Um, It was a good length. The sleeves had like these little thumb things that he could put through. So overall, it was a shirt that was practical um, and all his friends saw that he had it. Obviously, he couldn't run to the UK and grab more and sell them. So he started (laughs) to make his own. Um, So he started selling his favorite clothing to climb in. So he would recreate like a rugby shirt. He was trying for years to figure out waterproofing, which will get to later and like sweat wicking Mm -hmm. um and his whole family was behind him on this like they ended up finding a abandoned like textile factory that had a couple leftovers in it from like faux fur production 
and they started to figure out how to like sweat wick but also like retain heat and like do a bunch of things Whoa. with just like fabric it was pretty cool they had so some engineers his, in their mix i don't even think they did i think that's the cool part i think his family just would like make him a shirt and be like go try this and see if you're sweaty like <laughs> there was very very trial and error in the beginning which is really funny mm-hmm. um so he was selling things that he liked to climb in and those came from all over the world a lot of them were handmade hand knit things so at that point it was super small so he wasn't selling to many people but mm-hmm. it was global when he started so he and this is the um sweat wicking piece it was a pile under layer p-i-l-e um mm-hmm. it's not going to leave you like wet with sweat but like it was able to push like the water to the outside layer and then it would evaporate and then the inside you were keeping warm and then also like if you tend to sweat sometimes and you go outside the sweat freezes so it makes you cold yeah it didn't have that effect it was overall pretty cool so he was testing stuff out with that with climbing um and then he started to get more successful and through research and design they came up with these might ring a bell um the cinchilla fabric that they have Mm-hmm. And then they have the capoline fabric and those are both like layering fabrics that they designed. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I feel like, do they still have those now? I feel like that sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. Do you know that I'm going to call it, it's called the like cinchilla snap tea. It's the one that like it's fleece and then it has a little like on the top button. I told you, yeah. I have one of those. You yeah. have one, your blue <laughs> yeah. one. That's a cinchilla. Wait, one. that's so cool. He had like, that one of the first that was one of the first ones that's so that cool. was one of the first textiles I think that was pile was first technically but okay. pile got turned into capoline cinchilla was its own thing so that's, that's from cool. the 70s oh, um yeah it's like a then, perfect layer yeah and they actually when they started again it wasn't like a fully launched brand yet but they were producing sort of a magazine or putting out a newsletter and they mm-hmm. were actually the first like outdoor outfitter to publish how to layer for different outdoor activities so they were teaching the public as well how to layer for skiing, climbing, winter running, like things like that. That's cool. Cause I feel like you see people like I'm thinking of even my mom when she was running, when she was younger, like wearing like cotton and all these layers that mm-hmm. just like are not good to do. outdoor no. activities. So that's cool <laughs> that they're like educating the public. Yeah. I love that part. I wish I could find it. It's probably in their archives somewhere, but I'd be curious to read what someone would tell me in the seventies to do <laughs> about like cross-country skiing. <laughs> I think it'd be hysterical. Oh, and then this was another piece that I thought was really, really cool. And I didn't even think about it. In the 80s, outdoor gear was these terrible colors. Like we're talking tan, camel, army green, maybe uh. black, terrible colors. So Patagonia was starting to introduce like the pop colors, like the bright reds and stuff like that. Because oh, cool. like outdoor gear was considered like lame and not really like, you'd only wear it to do those activities. It's like like you for really... Boy Scouts. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't really have any fun colors. So in the 80s. Gonia introduced those and I thought that was pretty cool because now we see they have some of the craziest patterns and colors (laughs) that's cool too yeah so from a business standpoint and I will um actually I'll start to introduce Avi now so Avi Garbo is the one who spoke as part of the beehive um I guess like beehive summit that Dickinson hosted a couple years ago. Um, okay. He was a featured guest and he is the current, I checked his LinkedIn, so he's current, the current <laughs> environmental advocate for Patagonia. Um, right. And his prior employment, he worked at the EPA for about eight years under the Obama administration. Um, okay, super cool. I know. He like kind of ran the EPA too. He was like really, really high up. 
That's cool. I like that they like have an environmental advocate position too, like in their company. Right. I personally like, I like that you went from like being the top of the EPA to working for Patagonia. Like that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. It says a lot about the company. Yeah. So he jumped from government to private sector and he, he talked a lot about that in his, um, in his little TED talk that he gave. So I bring him up because through his talking, he obviously works in the Ventura office, which is their main office. And he was talking a little bit about how well thought out that operation is. So he was mentioning these couple facts. Um, they have 100% renewable energy for all U.S. operations and 75% and counting for their international operations. Wow. Yeah, which is are, Do they have impressive. a lot of international business? They do. Um, obviously, they ship worldwide, but I did mm-hmm. see, I feel like we saw some abroad. I think, feel like we might have even seen one in Dublin together. That sounds really familiar, actually. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I feel like we also, saw maybe London, I saw one too. I did see some in Europe. They're not as common, but like, definitely did yeah. see some. Um, and then this was cool. There's racks of bikes and surfboards outside their headquarters because they are adventurers like so close to the beach um that's so cool the surfboard rack is like I love that um <laughs> it's like the outhouses have, canoes but right <laughs> but we're nowhere near water <laughs> yeah um they have organic food in their cafe um that's part of the HQ and then they have meatless Mondays and Fridays isn't Good. that so cute that's and awesome. they've been well they also um he didn't mention this, but I was reading this through their blog. They have like their staple is beans and rice, um, <laughs> which I have done dehydrated beans and rice camping. It's very common, but also if you mm-hmm. you don't have to do it dehydrated, it's just a good hearty meal. Um, yeah. And they have that every day, so wow. that's like the, the constant um, beans and rice. Um, <laughs> they are planning and hoping to be carbon neutral by 2025 through their supply chain, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. Um, they use regenerative agriculture. Recently, they branched out into something called Patagonia Provision. So, like, they jumped mm-hmm. into the food industry a little bit. Wow. Um, I've tried their stuff. It's actually really good. Um, they do the dehydrated wow. stuff for camping. They have, like, granola bar type things. They actually have, like, fish, which sounds really weird. Whoa. Um, but their fishing practices are extremely impressive. Um, and then the way that they get all those products and things like that are through regenerative agriculture. So mm. ensuring that they can continue to use the land that they're currently using. I'm like trying to visualize, cause I know like Dickinson had our like 2020 carbon neutrality um, that we like hit for Earth Day, I think. And I'm trying to like, we're like technically like a large business. I'm trying to think of like how crazy it must be for them to achieve carbon neutrality being like huge international corporation, like shipping worldwide. Like that's so impressive. Yeah. And I know when I did the Copenhagen Fashion Week episode, part of their requirements for the um, brands that participated was to have a well thought out supply chain. And these are small Danish designers where Mm. I'm not saying it would be easy but it would be easier for them right. to complete that. And this is a large, large scale corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll touch on it later. They don't own their textile factories and like where their products are made, which is a little difficult to have that carbon neutrality because they aren't necessarily the ones who own it. Right. Um, so they talk about how they work through like fair trade and like wage respect and things like that through companies and warehouses that they don't own. Um, so they kind of work their way around it. I'll talk about it in like a second, but they work their way around a couple loopholes. Um, 
to make sure everyone was getting paid fairly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also back to the Patagonia provision stuff, I did pick it up once in the DC store and it, I'm not gonna say never expires, but like <laughs> it's got a long shelf life, um, which is pretty cool. It's like so, astronaut food. Kind of, which is funny because <laughs> they're using all fresh stuff, but they just figured out like a way to dehydrate it that it can like chill forever. Mm. Um, and then also, I know you've gone on the Patagonia website, I'm assuming. Um, but you know how you- <laughs> I love their sales. <laughs> we are no stranger to their sales back in over 204, but um, you know how when you go on their website, typically there's like a video or like they never promote their clothing basically on their homepage. It's like a right. massive, the screen is filled with like sign this petition, like watch this video. We have a documentary coming out about like surfing in Costa Rica and right, like yeah. gender inequality. Like they cover everything. Um, and I do love how their homepage never pushes their clothing. Like their homepage, you got to navigate past like a bunch of stuff mm. that's worth reading or watching prior to seeing their product, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I feel like especially this summer, we saw a lot of companies jump to kind of like performative activism, but it seems that like Patagonia from the like get-go has had it kind of like ingrained, which is like really yeah. good to see. And the whole, the whole reason I wanted to talk about them was um, what it's like to be a company that is founded on sustainability and you're not adding it in later because that's when it can get expensive. And also if it's expensive, they're not going to want to do it as right. much. Whereas if you're founded on these practices and your supply chain from the 80s never really used diesel fuel, like you're not going to add it in later. You're just going to keep it that way. Like it's way easier. Um, But that definitely has benefited them. Um, And I know with all the Trump stuff, um, people were finding on their tags, what was it, dump Trump? There was something like on the tags. I recalled something that maybe might be interesting to know. I remembered like on election day, I think that's where we saw Patagonia in Burlington. They had a store, I think. Yeah. And on election day, they were completely closed to like have everyone go out and vote, which is awesome. Yeah, which we love and we are glad they did. (laughs) Um, So now diving into a little more of the specifics, that was just sort of what Avi talked about as far as their headquarters, which I thought was cool to know. diving into what he was talking about with his environmental advocate position that he thought more people should know about. Um, So there is something called the We Are Still In, um, which is a series of, I'm gonna pull it up, 2,200 global businesses that after Trump decided to leave the Paris Agreement, Paris Climate Agreement, Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Paris Climate Agreement. After leaving the Paris Climate Agreement, these global businesses all signed this compact saying that they were like still going to follow the rules and things and just sort of the general idea that that agreement um, implies. So they're all private sector companies um, and they just agree to abide by it and continue. Um, Out of those 2,200 global businesses, they were given options to report their numbers and data that they were getting about the how sustainable you are. So the example he gave was you could opt to report on carbon removal commitments. So you can say you're trying to go carbon neutral, but like, what are you doing? I think it's called carbon positive. It's like, what are you doing to like also actively remove carbon from the atmosphere, not just stop Mm -hmm. putting it out there. Um, And you can report what you're doing and how you're giving back and things like that. If you actually are, that's the wink wink. 
Mm-hmm. And out of the 2,200 global businesses, only 116 report their carbon removal commitment. Wow. And Is Patagonia one of them? They are. They are. He would okay. not bring that up if they weren't. <laughs> um, but the quote that he followed up with that I thought was like really important, and you talked about it with like environmental activism, we need to find ways to translate that support into action. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, 2,200 people signed it and said they would still abide by the Paris Climate Agreement's values, but only 116 can back up their signature, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's turning performative action into action. <laughs> yeah, wow. I don't know so, if you know this, so you can cut this if not, but um, do you know if um, the other companies that kind of followed along with the, that commitment were similar genre, like outdoor um, kind of, outerwear type of companies or any idea I want to look that up he I feel like he would have mentioned it also these are people that like they could be investment firms like oh okay I see yeah like it was it's very important either way so I was just wondering yeah I'm I'm gonna pull it up let me see I don't know if I can find that data because he didn't mention it so Mm. I don't know if it's gonna tell me that I don't know how fast it would be to find curiosity Way to catch me off guard, Julia Walsh. Sorry, I was just curious. No, but I know when he was talking about it, though, he was like, and these aren't all, like, apparel brands. When he says global businesses, it could be, like, shippers. It could be food industry, investment firms. It's literally anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now we're going to get to the current initiatives and some things that they're up to. And you might actually recognize these because these are all... I say current, they've been up to stuff, obviously, since they began, but these all start after 2012. So mm-hmm. pretty recent. Um, I think the most common one, and I should have worn my shirt that's part of this, is Warnware. Mm-hmm. Do you know what that is? Yeah. That's their system where um, it's not a buyback, but you can give them your clothes that are damaged, either for them to fix and then you take back, or you can just give them for them to fix and then they resell it on their Warnware site. Um mm-hmm. I actually bought something not knowing it was part of their worn wear collection. So I don't even know what was wrong with it, but it works great. Sustainable um, queen. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think the cool part about this one is they have this like, I want to say it's an Airstream, like some type of like larger vehicle type thing that they take it all over the country. You can actually track pre-COVID where it was going. And that's when you could take it in person and have it fixed. And then you just like take it back. Gotcha. Um and they're constantly posting on their Instagram um, what they've reworked. And sometimes pieces are so damaged and they take mm-hmm. like their current textiles and they fix it up and it actually looks better than when wow. it started. So those are pretty cool. That's cool. I feel like I saw somewhere too that they're getting into doing like recycled um, materials as well. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I know since the start, so when they were developing the cinchilla and the capillin layers, I know sustainability wasn't at the forefront. Obviously they were using an old faux fur plant. So they were using recycled materials without, I think they probably would have ended up buying them new just for research and design purposes. Mm-hmm. But I know they're using, if they ever use polyester, it's recycled polyester. Um, polyester is terrible for the environment. So I know if they're going to use it, they're going to think it through. Um, I don't know if they're actively like pulling. I know there's companies who will like pull like plastic waste from the ocean and you can turn that into Mm -hmm. a textile. I don't know if they're going out and like taking waste and turning it into a textile necessarily. But I know that when they do come up with a textile, it is well thought out. It's organic, fair trade, things like that. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
Um, their second one to be noted is the Tin Shed Ventures, which I had never heard of, which was started yeah, in 2013. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's sort of an ode to um, Shrinard's old Tin Shed where Shrinard equipment was founded. So it's like the Tin Shed. Um, it's a venture capital fund for entrepreneurs with an environmental focus. So he plays Shark Tank essentially with people <laughs> who have products and ideas that are environmentally focused. Um, that is so cool. He seems like a great guy <laughs> yeah wow so is um, it a family like but like does his family kind of work in it with him or is he kind of just doing it on his own back when it started um they were the push behind the clothing piece like I think he wanted to keep going with Shunard equipment for as long as he could because that's just mm-hmm. what he liked to do as a blacksmith but I think when he was dipping into figuring out like sweat wicking material his family was like we'll do it for you like we'll make you some clothes and then he would like give it to a friend and they would be like, no, like I want another one. I'll pay you. And his family was like, oh, like we could get behind you and help. Gotcha. I think it was a family venture. I don't think he wanted it to be a family venture from the start. I think it turned <laughs> into that um, when they sewed everything for him. But yeah, it did. It was a family venture, I would say. Gotcha. Um, the other one that I think is probably, I like their worn wear, but this one seems really important to me is the fair trade. Um, their stance on fair trade I think it's just called their like fair trade act um, of 2014 so some of the money spent on every single product goes to the producers and stays within the community where that warehouse and that production plant is that's what I'm saying like they don't have control necessarily they don't own the the textile production plants where people make their garments so they're not really in control of what they get paid necessarily Mm-hmm. But their loophole is giving part of that money back to community programs or giving it back to the producers. Obviously, they're not outsourcing to like horrible production companies, but they're giving back to the producers and saying like, you better do something great with us and make sure that they're good. So things That's like that. That's so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And anytime they're sourcing outside of the United States, I know cotton is a huge debate right now because there's a lot of unfair wage like management and the cotton production out in I would say East Asia is terrible right now um so I know whenever they pull from other countries it's fair trade as well mm-hmm. and That's lastly fun. a great one for our generation is Patagonia Action Works which was started in 2018 um which I feel like I've heard of maybe but it's their connection um taking customers that they've had so it's not the best when people take emails when you buy things, but they basically <laughs> shoot up your email with environmental action groups that are local to you. So they're able to pull where you are and where the item was shipped to and then target local action groups and send them to you so that you can either get involved, they'll notify you when there's like a climate march and things like that um, nice. within like a certain mileage distance from you. So that's sort of the benefits of where like Instagram listens to you and stuff like that. Like take <laughs> your email and then just like send you anything they need. But yeah, that's what they but are. Helpful, helpful things. I know. Right. And that's all I have. Do you have any questions? Sweet. Um, no, the only other thing was, I thought it was cool how they, it's like interesting because it's obviously like, part of like capitalism like a business that's like creating like products that it's like not fast fashion but it it I don't know I feel like there's an interesting dynamic there so I think it's cool that they try to like still be so conscientious even though they are like producing a lot of products all the time I don't know I feel like they do a good job of kind of like balancing that it's cool yeah and I would say they're also one of the only large-scale corporations 
obviously in the outdoor recreation industry, but there's a lot of corporations that people are praising for being sustainable right now. And I think they're breaking even sustainable. Like, I don't think they're Mm -hmm. positively contributing, contributing or like positively like giving back and like helping in a bajillion different ways and making sure like other people understand and donating to things. Like, I think, I don't know if climate positive is the right word. I don't even know how to describe it, but I feel like Patagonia is like not only breaking even, but they're going like above and beyond to make Mm -hmm. sure, Um, which I think obviously gives them the foot up, but I think also starting out sustainable gave them the foot up anyways. So maybe hopefully five, 10, 15 years down the road, companies like Marmot and like North Face will also start giving back and being climate positive, but I don't know. I feel like that genre, it like goes well with that like genre of brand. Like I know REI is kind of on a similar wavelength. Um, I don't know if they were also like closed for Black Friday, but I feel like they have a similar mm-hmm. idea. They have a good, um, I feel like you probably know this, but they have a great garage sale program that I think pulls mm-hmm. from Patagonia war and wear type thing. Like if pe- you can return anything, even if it's damaged, people will note the damage and then they sell it like once a month. That's mm-hmm. how I get like all my ski clothing. Mm-hmm. But I think that has the same idea as Warren Wear and things like that. And I know a lot of brands don't want to be resold via the Aria Garage Sale and they ask them not to. And they like, mm. they're like, look, we'll take all our damaged stuff back. Like we don't ever want our reputation to come off as like damaged and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I know Patagonia is one of the brands that's like, please do like, please resell our stuff. Even if there's a hole in it, like <laughs> get <Yeah>. into it, <laughs> which is nice to know. Um, and I will say one brand that is, I'm going to say terrible, like the North Face. Is it bad? I didn't even know that. Just as an outdoor recreation brand, they're not thinking it through. Because mm. people are using their equipment to take advantage of things that we might not have in a couple of years due to climate change. And they're not even mm. actively like trying to combat that. They just are like, yep, keep buying the $200 backpack to go rock climbing on like a frozen waterfall. But like, in five years, there's not going to be frozen waterfalls. Like, sorry. Yeah. Yikes. They don't seem to be trying to figure it out on the other end, which is kind of frustrating. Hmm. They do a little bit, but definitely not enough for the industry that they're in. Yeah. They should uh, take a note from Patagonia. I know. But also when you're comparing everything to Patagonia, they all look bad. <laughs> Except <laughs> L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean's good. Yeah. I looked into L.L. Bean. Um, shout out CEO. Shout out L.L. Bean. Steve Lacey. What's his name? Oh, this is bad. I'm going to cut this out. Um, Whatever Steven his name is. Smith. Steve oh, Smith. I got Steve. Shout out Steve Smith. Um, Please sponsor us. <laughs> I'll leave it in so he could sponsor us. <laughs> um, yeah, they do a pretty good job. Um, I know that, again, rubber, polyester, not necessarily the best things, but rubber is a really easy one that you can buy um, like old or recycled rubber and then you can repurpose. And I know they do that. And they have a good... Um, I know my dad just got his L.L. Bean boots repaired from like the 80s. Mine are so. getting repaired right now as we speak. They're at the factory. Yeah, oh my gosh, I guess perfect. that's what I was trying to get at with Patagonia. Like, because L.L. Bean, that's like made to last. I feel like Patagonia is the same thing. Like, sure, you're buying like a new Patagonia like um, fleece, but it's going to last you like forever. Yeah, yeah. Totally off topic, but I do the same thing with like jeans. Like if I have to spend more for a good pair of jeans... And I know they're not going to end up in a landfill in like six months because they're awful. Like I'd rather mm-hmm. spend more money on it, like buying the quality equipment to keep it 
out of a landfill out of that like cyclical like fashion cycle um yeah is really good and I think it's hard to grasp especially like as a college student or like if you're not like if you're like tight on money like I don't always have like the time yeah we don't have the big money like I don't have the big bucks to be spending on like a really nice like anything right now but I think like saving up and like aspiring to do that is also like super important Mm -hmm. all right Thank you so much, Julia Walsh, for joining me this week on the podcast. Um, and yeah, Steve, CEO of LLB, if you're listening to this, <laughs> one, fix Julia's boots faster. It just snowed here. <laughs> and two, I would love a sponsorship or a job. So <laughs> thanks for having me. Super interesting. <laughs>